0: Hi, my name is Pastor Paul Goddard, and I would like to welcome you to the Sunday Sermon podcast series from Bethel Assembly of God. In these podcasts, we will be sharing our Sunday morning messages so that you can keep up with all the teachings that are going on here at Bethel. We want to invite you to join us in person on Sundays at 1030 a.m. at 6029 Lapeer Road in Burton, Michigan. Bethel Assembly of God, we are a family, and as family, we grow, and as family, we go. I hope this message blesses and encourage you. Thank you. So this week, it's our first Sunday of the month. So uh, we have the kids are with us here in the sanctuary. So we're going to get right into this real quick. Uh, This is our week three of the core values. So we're going to wrap up with the final three core values of the Bethel Assembly of God. So last week, we we got to our fifth one. And, you know, it's important. I want to say this over and over again. We need to know what we stand for as a church and as people. Uh, We want to be known for what we're for. What we are for is life-giving. What we are for is hopeful. What we are for brings joy to people. It brings freedom to people. We don't just want to be known for what we're against. Um, what we are against can often be taken as just condemnation. It can be taken as just judgment. And within that, I want to, I want to really make sure, because I had a couple of questions, I want to make sure everyone understands this. We do not excuse or relabel sin. A sin is a sin. But what we are going to do is to love people through their sin. Because I'm standing up here and I can tell you that I only stand here today to be able to speak to you because somebody loved me through my sin. And that's the same for every single one of us that sit here today. We were loved through our flaws and we were loved through our sins to where we are. We want to be known for who we stand for and that's Jesus. So our first five family values that we went over is number one, that we are family. Two, that this will be a place of grace. Three, that we will be others focused. Four, we will live generously. And five, we will grow spiritually, which is what we covered last week. Um, our, our verses for this, our core verses for this particular part of the series is Matthew chapter seven, and I'm gonna reread this today. Um, Matthew seven twenty four through 27 says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on a rock. And everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be likened to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and its fall was great." Number six, our sixth core value. This is important because it's so much to do with who Jesus was. It is this, we will be servant-hearted. We commit to continuously serving each other and to improve and hone our ability to serve God, our church, and our community in love. See, last week we talked about discipleship. And discipleship, is important because it's how we are going to grow spiritually. It's how we grow in knowledge. It's how we grow in wisdom. It's how we grow in practice of our faith. Serving goes hand in hand with discipleship. Jesus wants us to make disciples of all nations. And in order to do that, we have to serve. By serving, you are helping the church with its purpose. Not only are they discipling the people who regularly attend, but people even come to Christ by attending the church. On another level, choosing to serve is a step towards being a better disciple. And it's a sign of faith and your Christianity. See, the Great Commission is a command to serve others around us. Serving in the local church is necessary. Um, whether the local church is where you were born, where you moved, or in a a country somewhere else. Now, for many people, serving in their church, in their local church, brings so much joy that there, there really isn't even a question of whether it is necessary to serve or not. But some, whether it's from shyness, busyness, or any other number of reasons may not be as quick to jump in and help. To answer whether it is necessary to serve in the local church, we first need to ask something of ourselves. What does it mean to serve the local church? See, serving the local church means that to help the body of Christ is a way to glorify God, not ourselves. And in this act of worship, we spread the love of Jesus to those Around us, see the local church is com- com- comprised of people coming together and worshiping Jesus, and it's done in a variety of ways. Uh, of course, attending the service to participate in singing and listening intently, listening intently to the sermon—not just listening—is an act of worship. But there are also so many other ways to worship the Lord in the church by means of service. You can serve by being a greeter. Or an usher. You can serve by working in the kids' ministry, the nursery, or helping with the tech. Or even by making, and if you're like me, drinking the coffee. And Laura and I discussed this last night. You can serve by drinking coffee. It's possible. I even, right? Yes, it is. You can serve by drinking coffee. It's good service. If if I'm having coffee and talking to you, here we go. We're serving. Serving at a church can either be at the church building itself, whether on Sundays or during the work, or it can be you know something that we do outside the church. I think back to you know, Thanksgiving time and some of the stuff we did around Christmas, where we served outside the building. In fact, I like to remind people that our primary form of worship is done through our life and our actions, not just the portion, the 20-minute portion of songs that we sing on a Sunday morning. 1 Peter 4, 8-10 says, Above all things, have unfailing love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. As everyone has received a gift, even so, serve one another with it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone serves, let him serve with the strength that God supplies, so that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When serving, one of the things we do have to do is we have to check our reasons for why we're serving. Are you serving to fulfill a need within yourself? Or are you serving to glorify God? We should be serving the local church because of our love for God and to follow Jesus' example. See, Matthew twenty twenty eight says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Eric Geiger, who who writes for churchleaders.com, gives a great summary of how our hearts should look, where they should be. And it says this, Jesus was saying that his followers are to serve others not because it's the right thing to do, not because we'd feel guilty if we didn't. We serve because Jesus has served us. His service should melt our hearts and cause us to serve others out of sheer gratitude to him. If we're not careful, serving can become a way we try to earn the love we've already received from God to pay Jesus back for his generous grace. While churches preaching the grace of God would never suggest that serving or volunteering contributes anything to a person's salvation, we have a subtle tendency among us that leads us to believe that serving is a way to stay in good with God. Therefore, unless serving is continually And unapologetically connected to the gospel, it can become a burden, a manipulator, a guilt reliever, or a backhanded method we employ to just keep serving ourselves. We serve each other, yes, out of love. Yes, out of need. The church needs people to do the jobs within the church. We need people to greet. We need people to make coffee. We need people to be ushers, to run the sound, the slides, do music, all of that stuff. But those aren't the primary reasons why we do it. Those are the end things that happen. We serve each other because Jesus first served us. And that's it. All the other reasons, all the other things fall under that. Because I've served for other reasons, and things become burdens. Have you ever done something in a church, and it becomes wearisome? It becomes so heavy that you don't feel like you can carry it anymore. I don't remember who I was talking. I was talking to uh, somebody here. It was about a friend of mine preached sermon, and the name of the sermon was "Stop Doing Jesus or Stop Doing God's Job." And it talked about the burden that we carry ourselves of seeing people come to know Jesus as if you and I can actually save people. We can help spread the gospel. We can bring hope to people. But I cannot provide salvation for someone. You cannot provide salvation to someone. All we can do is serve and point them to Jesus. We will be servant-hearted. The next one. We will be authentic. Now, earlier this week, I was talking to a friend of mine, and I said, you know, we're going to say one of our core values is we will be authentic. And he said, don't you mean relevant? And I said, no, I don't. I hate the word relevant. And he's like, why? I said, because relevant always changes. What's relevant today won't be relevant tomorrow. What was relevant 30 years ago isn't relevant Today. But authentic means real. It is important. Authentic matters. You can have a relevant gospel or you can have an authentic gospel. And I want to lean towards an authentic gospel. We will be authentic. It says our lives will be rooted in integrity, honesty, and holiness while being open and transparent with one another. So when I say authentic, what exactly is authenticity? Well, that depends on what you believe and who you talk to. So this is where I am landing on this definition. Author, researcher, and uh, speaker, Brene Brown, who has become a kind of modern-day evangelist for authenticity and vulnerability, Says, authenticity is the daily practice of letting go of who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. I really like that, it, but it falls just short of biblical authenticity. If the pers- purpose of my life is to just be real, what purpose does that really serve? See, my worldview, my lens, whatever you want to call it, is greatly impacted what I believe is critical about authenticity. Authenticity from the world's perspective, as real as we try to be, will never truly fulfill our deepest longing. I, I grew up in the church as a, a young man in the age of promise keepers. Does anybody remember promise keepers? Promise keepers gave birth to this kind of ridiculous man movement um, where we, you know... They got into these things, and I left as a young man and came back as an adult. And since I came back as an adult, I I have participated in many ministry events geared towards getting me to be a real man. A real man, you know, like how the Bible shows us a man who wants to hunt, shoot things, drive things in mud, and every event's the same. We have breakfast. Somebody will speak, and then I'm supposed to be vulnerable and share my weaknesses to the other men. Every event. It's really awkward. It's really awkward. But I also don't think that there is any real authenticity achieved in these events. For example, if I'm a jerk, I'm not a jerk. I'm just saying if if I'm a jerk, does it really matter whether I'm a jerk in front of you, or behind your back, I'm still a jerk. If authenticity is the daily practice of letting go of who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are, the question of biblical authenticity we all need to wrestle with is this, who did God create me to be? It's not who do I want to be, it's not who do I think I should be, It is who did God create me to be? See, being authentic is not an end to itself, but it's a critical component to discover who we are created to be. It is a tool. It's it's not an end state. It's not the end of things. The question needs to be asked, why is authenticity so important to my journey? It's this. Every human being longs to be known and loved as they truly are. The good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, the highs, the lows, the greatest parts of us, our strengths, our weaknesses, all of it. We want to be known as complete beings. We long for it. This is why the relationship. See, we want to be unconditionally loved. We live in a conditional world, but we want to be unconditionally loved. And this is where a relationship with Jesus Christ is so important. Whether, you, whether you've already established that or not, the very foundation of our faith is that our God sent his Son to die for me without conditions in the ugliest moment of my life, in my sin, because he loved me unconditionally. See, the gospel not only hinges on the death and resurrection of Jesus, but the church's ability to authentically, sincerely, and genuinely share that hope through broken and messed up people. We've all got sin in our past. We've all been broken at some point, and God has put us back together. Excuse me. The takeaway for me is this. A year from today, will those who are closest to me see someone transformed more by the gospel? The fruit of what God is doing in my life is the only way that someone will know if my life is continually being transformed. Oftentimes we want people to see all that is going right or smart or my way or how perfect my life is. Social media has made this wonderful way that we can communicate just the highlights of our life. Just the highlights. But really for real authenticity to work, people need to see me when I don't have it all together. When I fall apart when i struggle for us if we if we portray this picture of always always being great of always being wonderful we're robbing the power of jesus in our life by letting people know i struggle but but for god i would struggle i can't go on without god people need to see the transforming nature of jesus so that you can see what it does in our lives. The purpose of our lives is that as Christ transforms us, people will not be drawn to us, but to Christ. We wanna draw people to Jesus. In other words, we need to stop making it about us but making it about Jesus as we serve. Making it about Jesus authentically in our lives. When we try to uh, present perfection, when things do fall apart, and they will, there will be cracks, there will be struggles, there will be problems. Not only have we robbed Jesus already of the glory of what he is doing in our life, but now we're painting a different picture of who he is. Because people have already thought you have it together. We need to be authentic. We need to testify about how Jesus helps us in our struggles and is growing us to be more like him. See, I suffer from anxiety, but Jesus helps me through. I suffer from depression, but Jesus transforms me. I have addictive behavior tendency, but last week, I got to mark 16 years of sobriety. And I share not to brag, but to give glory to Jesus and to share hope for others. When we are authentic, when we let Jesus shine through the cracks and the wounds and the cuts of our lives, that hope shows up on others. Authenticity matters. This is the last one. This is the toughest one out of all of them. We will refuse to be offended. When Laura and I were reading these, she looked at me and she goes, We don't do this. And I said, I know, but I want to. It's not about what we do, it's about what we're going to do. It's a struggle we will refuse to be offended. And it says this, even in the midst of a world that is growing increasingly further from God, we refuse to be offended by sin. We refuse to be offended by the lostness of a lost world. Instead, we will pray. We will love and we will shine the love of God into the lives of those around us. This isn't about not getting our feelings hurt when someone harms us, or even about being righteously angry about situations. It's about how we are going to respond to them. Should you be bothered by sin? Yes. Should we be offended by someone who sins? No. Time and time again, we like the statement, love the sinner, hate the sin but we have made an art form out of making the sinner into their sin by being offended by somebody else's sin. Whatever that choice of sin may be, whether it's their, their lifestyle, whether it's substance abuse, whether it's their sexual orientation. All these things we have taken and turned into identities. And we have made sinners Into their sins. And once we've done that, we can't, I won't say we can't, we can't, but God can. We can't separate the person from their sin because we've made them one. God can do it. We have done this and we've managed to be offended not only by their actions and their choices, but also by their presence as well. I've made a decision that I refuse to be offended or even surprised when a world that is lost in sin sins. I refuse to be offended when those who haven't found Christ live a lifestyle of sin. This is my analogy for this. This is my example. If you were to encounter someone who was blind. Would you be offended by their inability to see? Or would we find ways to help them navigate? To help them find their way to where they need to be? Here's a truth. We are all blind. And we only see our way by the grace and mercy of God through the salvation of that was bought through Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus was probably the most patient with people of any person who ever has been on this earth. I mean, come on. He sits down to dinner with Judas and even gives him space to go and prepare himself for the ultimate offense that he's going to perpetrate against Christ I don't know about you, but I'm probably not going to sit down to dinner with someone I know is getting ready to set me up to be killed. Let alone to actually excuse them from dinner to let them go and carry it out. But that's what Jesus did. We read in Luke 7, 36 through 50, the account of a Pharisee named Simon who invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And a sinful woman, and judging from the reactions of Simon... She was most likely a prostitute. Her Jesus was eating there and came with an alabaster jar full of perfume. She stood behind Jesus at his feet weeping and began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured the perfume on them. Now, her gesture by itself was financially and socially costly. She not only poured the expensive perfume on Jesus' feet, but also wiped them with her hair in public. By unloosing her hair in itself in a society where women wore a head covering as a sign of piety, she was making the ultimate pledge of loyalty to Jesus. Simon was offended by her coming, her showing up and treatment of the prophet in this strange manner. And he, wanted, he really wanted to avoid this in his house. In verse 39, it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman she is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now the best part of this account is, it says, He said to himself. And then Jesus responds to him. Verse 40 says, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, teacher, say it. He's probably thinking Jesus is going to agree with him because this is horrible, right? A creditor has two debtors. The one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they had no money to pay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose he whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. So what is the moral of of that little parable that Jesus tells? It's the more forgiveness one receives from Jesus, the more costly love one can offer back to him. By contrast, Simon, who seemingly had been forgiven little, loved little. Whereas the woman, who seemingly had been forgiven a lot, poured out an extravagant measure of love to Jesus. See, people will judge others based on outward appearance and reputation, but Jesus looks at the heart and offers a boundless grace to all who turn to him in faith. Although Jesus took the time to teach right there, it wasn't the end. Verse 44 is, Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little Loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Those who sat at supper with him began to say to themselves, Who is he who even forgives sins? In his final words, Jesus had forgiven the woman's sin, reminding her that the faith in him was the saving force that would lead to the path of peace. Jesus gave no anger. No offense, just love and forgiveness. I'm gonna close with this. I wanna, I wanna share. Core values are important. They're very important, and I wanna give you seven quick reasons why. Why that we have to have core values, not just what we believe not just a doctrinal belief statement, but a value statement as well. Here, here it is. The first one is that they determine your organization's distinctives. And this is what that means. It's what makes, you know, what makes you different from every other church. There are 56 churches in Burton. 56. What is going to make Bethel Assembly of God different than those 56 churches? I don't know any of them. I've only met a couple of the pastors. What what differentiates us, though? One way to do that is having a core value. What are we going to value, and how are we going to live our lives and show people who we are? The second, they dictate personal involvement and alignment. See, we talked about service, and here's the great thing about service. If you want to serve in an area, we can train you to serve in an area. Skills can be taught, But people who can line up and point in the same direction, people who can have a personal alignment in belief are going to help cultivate a culture where our faith, our service, and our practices line up with our mission and our purpose. Number three, this seems very simple. They communicate what is important. It's important that we're clear on what our values are not only so that we understand, but also so the community at large can understand. Fourth, they influence overall behavior. The worst thing in the world is having expectations for somebody that they don't know about. Our core values are our expected behavior as we interact with each other and with the world. The core values influence how we act, and we can actually see it. We want to live it out. We want others to see what is happening in our lives, in our workplaces, in our families, in our homes, our communities, our schools, wherever we are. Number five, they inspire people to action. If what we believe doesn't get us to do something, if it doesn't move us into action, then do we really believe it? Beliefs can be comforting or they can be motivating. We want to be motivated by Jesus, we want to be motivated by the work he's done in our lives. People take positive action because they are giving goals and values to live up to with these core values. Number six, they help contribute to the overall success of an organization. So this Thursday, I get to go to my first um, sectional event with all the pastors with the Assemblies God in our, our area. And one of the things that I know somebody is going to ask me because every time pastors get together, this is get, how many people are there Sunday morning? And I'll say, I don't know. And they'll say, you don't know? i say, I don't count. Well, why don't you count? Because that's not what's important to me. We need to know what our metrics for success are if we're going to be successful. Do we want to fill the sanctuary? Yes, we want to fill the sanctuary. But is that our primary metric of success? I've been in churches that are full where people are at each other's throats. I've been in churches that are empty where everybody loves each other. And embraces. Our metric is not going to be numeric. It's not going to be how many showed up to our outreach. It's not going to be numbers-based. It is going to be based on how we love each other. What did Jesus say? How are we going to be known? How we love each other. Our metrics that we're going to live by is living more like Christ. And that's what these values are based off. And the final one is this. Core values shape organizational culture. Every journey requires a guide, and our core values will be our guide. They are not our doctrine, they are not our core beliefs, but they are gonna help guide us in applying those as we deal with people, and that's what they are for. I want you to take the sheet you got today. Did everybody get one of the note sheets? Okay, before you leave, get a note sheet, because I promised you that you would get a sheet with all eight of them on it when we started. All eight of them are on there. Take it home. If you're the type of person who puts things on your refrigerator, I'm not judging you if you don't, but really, if you have a refrigerator and there's no art on it, is it really a refrigerator? Put it on your refrigerator. If you have a bulletin board, put it on your bulletin board. If you have a little thing by your door, tack it up by the door so that you can see it. Put it where you can reference it and know where it's at. You will see these start to pop up around the church in different places. Our core values are going to be how we interact with each other and how we get to where we're going. Thank you for joining us here today on the Bethel Sermon Series podcast. We want to invite you to join us in person at 6029 Lapeer Road on Sundays at 1030 a.m. You can also find out more information on our Facebook page or go to our website at www.bethelfamily.live. That's www.bethelfamily.live for more information. God bless. Have a great week. Subscribe and join us back for next week. Thank you.